system, as well as giving a timetable and roadmap on the abolition of functional constituencies in LegCo. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome back to Money for Nothing. I'm Renita Malhotra-Hora. U.S. stocks advance on earnings and confidence data. Facebook shares slump as the CFO says that the fourth quarter will be more difficult and police have foiled an apparent bomb attack on Aberdeen Police Station. Hong Kong protest leaders give terms for talks with government. Today on Money for Nothing, we'll talk about territorial warfare in the South China Sea with author Bill Hayton. We'll also get an update on China and Hong Kong equity strategy with Erwin Sanft of Standard Chartered Bank. Also on deck to share an update on the Hong Kong Shanghai Stock Connect is a tax expert. Florence Yip of PwC and Stuart Aldcroft of City Trust is my guest host this morning. Good morning, Stuart. Uh, good morning, Renita. All right. Uh, let's uh, look at today's top story, Stuart, shall we? Uh, the Dow jumped back to above 17,000 overnight yep. following a strong report on U.S. consumer confidence and another ne- and another round uh, of mostly solid corporate earnings. At the closing bell, the Dow Jones stood at 17,005, up 1.12%. The S&P 500 rose 1.19% to 1,985, while the Nasdaq soared one7 7.5% to 4,564. Consumers are regaining confidence in the U.S. economy. AP correspondent David Melendy reports. Consumer confidence has rebounded sharply after declining last month. Economist Lynn Franco of the Conference Board says the Business Research Group's Consumer Confidence Index rose from 89.0 in September to 94.5 this month. Consumers are a lot more optimistic about the outlook for the economy and the labor market and also income prospects. Franco says this boost in confidence is good news for retailers. With the holidays right around the corner, this is very welcome news. Stuart, consumer confidence is up, so is anticipation about Fed policy. Uh, The FOMC concludes its two-day meeting today, where it's expected to put the kibosh on QE. Are you expecting anything else other than just that? Uh, no. <laughs> I think it'll be, um, for, for all the analysts, a very boring result from the meeting because they've already forecasted more or less everything that is expected. And, uh, why should the, why should the Fed come up with anything different? Because it seems like everything is going well and on track. And boring is good, yes? Boring is brilliant, actually, in, in, in the investment world because you then know where you're going. And, uh, you know, of course, we've seen a lot of volatility over the last few months and, uh, that the volatility is also quite good because it gives buying opportunities for the smart ones, uh, but it's not um, so easy if you if you're buying at the top and selling at the bottom, which uh, unfortunately some of the more retail type investors tend to do. Okay, we'll definitely go with that. European shares also rose yesterday, reversing the previous session's dip as better than expected results from a number of blue chips, including Pharma Group, Novartis, and the bank UBS lifted sentiment. London's Benchmark FTSE 100 finished 0.6% higher to end the day at 6,402 points. In Paris, the CAC 40 rose 0.4% to 4,112 points, while Frankfurt's DAX index jumped 1.9% to 9,068 points.
Well, Facebook has reported third quarter revenues of $3.2 billion, which is well ahead of analyst forecasts and 59% higher than the same period last year. The social network also reported an $806 million profit, which is 90, a 90% increase on the same quarter a year ago. But CFO David Wenner suggested a more difficult comparison in the current quarter compared with the year earlier. This caused shares to slump 11% in after-hours trading. Let's bring in Scott Strawn, who is a tech analyst at IDC. He joins us now on the phone from San Francisco. Good morning, Scott, or I should say good afternoon. That's right. It's nice to be here with you. <laughs> Great to have you on. So, Scott, earnings for Facebook have been phenomenal, and David Wenner did say that uh, Q4 revenue could grow as much as 40 to 47%. So why this massive slide in Facebook shares? I think it's as much, if not more, to do with the expense guidance for 2015 um, that, that's causing this downturn. They're talking about substantial increase in expense related to <clears throat> some acquisitions that they're planning. They, they provided some detail, but not a, a tremendous amount of detail on you know, kind of the general direction that they'll be going over the course of the next 10 years, which we can expect to, to outline some of the rationale for what they may be purchasing over the course of the next year. But uh, as we saw with uh, Amazon's uh, results, um, there are a group of investors that seem to be getting a bit weary of um, waiting for uh, or, or um, uh, placing more money back into these companies in hopes that, that, that those investments will achieve similar returns to you know, the, the core business. Now, one of the things that uh, uh, David Wenner did say is that he also expects costs to grow uh, somewhere between 50 to 70 percent. Do you have any idea where those investments are going to be made? Um, they can be made in, in uh, quite a few different places. Obviously, they've made some fairly significant uh, acquisitions uh, over the past couple of years. We can anticipate them continuing to do very similar things. Um, you know, they purchased both Instagram and uh, and WhatsApp at valuations that a lot of, that received a lot of criticism. But you know, in many ways, what they were doing is purchasing uh, companies that that may represent a competitive threat. They were very rapidly growing businesses that that provide in many ways similar services. And so, we can anticipate that Facebook will continue to make similar types of acquisitions. Um, but in addition to that, we can anticipate them making acquisitions like the Oculus acquisition, where they'll be moving into entirely new um, segments of business. So, Scott, tell us why they've gotten so much criticism about this. I mean, isn't this the nature of the beast that you acquire, uh, you know, companies that you've mentioned, WhatsApp and, and so forth, and, but you can't expect them to be profitable from the get-go. I mean, it takes a while to sort of build up the consumer base and then get to those levels of profitability. This is true. Um, though, you know, it has to be taken into account that there are many different types of, of investors in the world who look at companies very differently. Uh, you have value investors that are looking at certain metrics, and you have growth investors that may be looking at others. And so in this case, um, and you have a mix with any company. With a, with a company of the, uh, the market cap of, uh, of Facebook, you may have a, a number of people that, that are starting to look for um, more of, a, a, I guess, look at valuations based on some uh, some metrics that that might be more relevant to more traditional companies, um, but you know, Facebook has been very consistent uh, about their intent to continue to make investments that will achieve returns and that will um, continue to allow them to grow their business. So mm. I don't, I do not anticipate that changing anytime soon. And in some ways, a sell-off like this looks like a um, 
it's kind of a a question on a lot of people's minds is whether or not it, the management of Facebook is is really uh, capable of being a really good steward of capital. Um, and there, you know, as, as I mentioned before, with with Amazon's um, earnings call, I, I think certain people are starting to, to question that. And things like the Fire Phone could. Uh, influence that type of thinking, but uh, I'm not sure that we've seen uh, similar types of evidence that um, the investments they're making are uh, are not very good investments. And so, um, but only time will tell. Okay, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Scott Strawn. He is a tech analyst at IDC. Well, the Hong Kong Shanghai Stock Connect has been expected to get underway uh, earlier this week, actually, but the scheme has still to get the all clear. No formal explanation has been given for the delay, but one possible explanation is that underlying tax issues still have to be worked out. Uh, PwC's China and Hong Kong tax leader Florence Yip joins us now to give us her take. Good morning, Florence. Um, good morning. How are you? Good, thank you. So, Florence, why is tax regarded as an important issue to be resolved prior to the launch of the Stock Connect? Okay. Um, uh, actually, um, tax is an important issue for um, making any investment because investors is looking for certainty of um, taxation treatment so that they can be certain of the after-tax yield. Now, um, from a... Um, uh, investors' point of view, I think since we are talking in Hong Kong, I think it's more relevant for Hong Kong and overseas investor investing into the Chinese market. Now, before the Hong Kong stock, uh, Hong, Hong Kong Shanghai Stock Connect, um, the only way a foreign investor trying to access China's Asia market would be via the QF and RQF scheme. Right now, the taxation treatment of um, capital gains disposal uh, transaction. The taxation treatment is still um, subject to um, clarity and clarification from the state administration of taxation of China. Now, in general, uh, let me just explain to you how the China taxation uh, is supposed to levy on um, individuals and institutional investors. Now, um, if you have an individual investor in China, um, they are actually exempt from individual income tax on the disposal gains of shares listed in Shanghai and the Shenzhen Stock Exchange. And they will be subject to a three-tier individual income tax system on dividends from this list of shares. Now, you would have expected that, okay, then would um, individuals, investors from Hong Kong or overseas investing in China be awarded with similar treatment? Now, according to the China um, domestic tax law, um, individual investors uh, receiving um, uh, uh, dividend income and uh, disposal gain could be subject to withholding tax in China. Okay, uh, I, th- I think Stuart, you you had something that you wanted to say to this, right? Yes. Well, hi, hi, Florence. Morning. Oh, hi, Stuart. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Um, when you're talking about um, the, the tax position, clearly, in some instances, RQF and QF managers have already had some tax clearance. So, isn't there going to be a, 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 a key problem here if if Stock Connect comes out and uh, RQF managers have got their tax clearance, and yet Stock Connect doesn't have tax clearance? Right now, um, I would say that for QF and RQF, uh, there are some. Uh, Houses who have uh, attempted to get clarification uh, from the authorities. Now, however, don't forget for QF and RQF so far, the license holders are institutions, 
i.e., there are a finite number of license holders, and who they are are very clear in the system. Now, in the future, if we are going to have Hong Kong Shanghai Stock Connect, we will have a vast number of institutional and also individual investors. So, I suppose from an administrative point of view, this is one challenge that one need to.、Um, Look into.、Right. Yeah, so, so clearly the question that people must be asking is will it be better to go via Stock Connect or buy via our QFI route? Right. Okay. Now,、um, until a ta- taxation treatment is、uh, clarified, at this moment,、uh, one would say that if you go for the Hong Kong、uh, uh, Shanghai Stock Connect, if you are an individual investor, you cannot actually. Well, easily get access to QFI and our QFI. However, if you are an institutional investor and you are qualified to apply for our QFI or QFI, then having a QFI or our QFI quota would give you certainty of access to the system、uh, or, or to the market. While as if you do it via the Hong Kong and Shanghai Stock Connect system, in the future there will be a quota system, and of course, depending on the quota availability, there remains a.、Um, An uncertainty as to the、uh, easy access to the market. Okay, thank you so much. That is Florence Yip. She is the China and Hong Kong tax leader at PwC. The time is now eight sixteen a.m. And Hong Kong stocks have been holding steady for several weeks following a sharp correction that began in September. Chris Oliver has the story. Good morning, Chris. Good morning. As we know, it has been delayed, but when cross-border stock trading between Hong Kong and Shanghai eventually does kick off, local analysts in Hong Kong expect some kind of a catalyst to the share market here. Among the beneficiaries are expected to be local small-cap stocks that traditionally have been favored by mainland investors. We're joined now by Erwin Saft. He's head of China and Hong Kong Equity Strategy at Standard Charter in Singapore. Good morning, Erwin. Yeah, good morning. So, why do you think small?、Uh, why, why do you think mainland investors will be buyers of small cap stocks in Hong Kong? Well, I think when we look at the domestic stock market in China,、uh, it commands the large. The small caps command the largest premium over the rest of the market anywhere in the world. And、uh, small caps make up nearly eighty percent of daily trading volume. So, so we don't think、uh, mainland investors are going to really change their style just because they're putting money into the Hong Kong market. So, my impression is that the premium of Shanghai listed stocks over the Hong Kong stocks has been shrinking over time. Is it still at a kind of a margin that would attract people to be piled into Hong Kong small caps? For the overall market, so for large and mid cap, we've seen quite a large convergence. But for small caps,、um, yeah, as I mentioned, the premium is extremely high,、um, the, the highest in the world. Whereas the Hong Kong market's unusual; that、uh, small caps here traded a discount. So if you look at the U.S. market, which we could maybe use as a benchmark, the, the Russell two thousand index,、uh, which represents small caps, trades on average well, at the moment at a fifty percent、uh, premium on price to earnings multiples versus the S and P five hundred. Uh, in Hong Kong, we traded a discount, and in the domestic China Asia market, the small caps trade at three hundred percent premium. Now, from your discussions with other analysts, do you have a view on why the Hong Kong stock、uh, through train has been delayed? Or I, I try not to talk to other analysts <laughs> to keep my mind clear, but.、Uh, 
Um, I, I think the taxation issue, at least uh, my discussions with uh, global, you know, the big global institutions, you know, this comes up constantly as an issue. And even if there is clarification, um, as Florence mentioned, it's still going to take them time to feed that back through their uh, head office to see whether the taxation uh, arrangements are going to be agreeable to them. So we would expect quite, even with a launch, which we do expect before the end of the year, um, participation by the large global institutions is going to be quite small to begin with, but will hopefully grow over time. Now, if we just draw the uh, focus back to investors in Hong Kong who want to get positioned for the Stock Connect, uh, what do you advise them to uh, be, be picking up or being, uh, to be accumulating at this point? You mean people who are investing money in the Hong Kong market, or play? yeah, just for yeah. just looking at it from a Hong Kong investor who's going to buy Hong Kong stocks? How do you right, get ahead right. of the? the yeah, so I think you look at the. There's two indices where mainland investors are allowed to invest. One is the Hang Seng Large Cap Index, um, but for the reasons I mentioned, I don't think there'll be a lot of money going in there, or at least not enough to really move those large names around. But for the Hang Seng Mid Cap Index, because small mid caps have performed so poorly this year, we've seen a lot of uh, so-called mid caps drop into small cap territory. Um, so we define that as below three billion US dollars of total market cap. Uh, there's quite a long. There's over 60 stocks. There, and I think that'd be the first place to go. One of the issues, though, that I think uh, many people find is that in the mid and small cap area, it's under research. There's not an awful lot of information out there, and especially if it's a mainland stock, um, sometimes the extent of that information isn't terribly clear. So, how are investors going to deal with that? So one of the big changes we're seeing in Hong Kong is uh, we already have uh, increasing participation from uh, mainland investors here who already have foreign currency. And also we've seen a rapid expansion of the mainland banks and securities houses. So in many cases, what they're doing is getting their analysts in China registered in Hong Kong so they're able to uh, publish research on uh, Hong Kong's uh, listed stocks. So in a way, this um, uh, you know informational uh, gap you, you mentioned is closing um, quite quickly. Yeah. Erwin, when uh, we know the delay has is in effect to push this into November at this point, so reasonably, when do you expect this to become functional? I think if this was to be delayed uh, into next year, that that would I think be seen given. Um, uh, the top-down direction or instructions that were given earlier in the year for the launch of the program uh, within this year, that, that would be seen as uh, you know, a real question mark around whether this program uh, is going to be viable or whether it indeed will go ahead. So we, we think there's uh, strong uh, motivations to get it up and running. Um, as a lot of people have mentioned, uh, apart from the taxation issue, most other things seem to have been uh, – uh, you know, all the ducks have been lined up and uh, we're ready for the launch. All right. I want to thank you very much for coming on the program today. That's Erwin oh, Senf of uh, Standard Chartered Bank. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Chris. We'll be uh, a quick look at the numbers, actually. In the currency markets, the euro is currently trading at 1.27 US dollars. The yen has weakened to 108 and the pound is still at 12.5 Hong Kong dollars. Brent crude oil is now at $86.03 and gold holds steady at $1,229.10 per ounce. The time is now 8.22 a.m. and we'll be back to talk about conflict in the South China Sea. That is right after this. <laughs>
Well, the South China Sea appears to be on the verge of conflict. In the past two years, Chinese Coast Guard ships have rammed their Vietnamese rivals, uh, blockaded Philippine outposts, disrupted Malaysian oil surveys, and threatened Indonesian fisheries protection vessels. The Chinese government claims indisputable sovereignty over the vast majority of the sea, while its southern neighbors assert that all or some of the islands in the sea rightfully belong to them. Bill Hayton's new book, The South China Sea, The Struggle for Power in Asia, tells the story of how China's rise has upset this global balance of power and how the, how the first place to feel the strain is actually right here in Beijing's backyard, the South China Sea. He joins us now uh, for further discussion on this. Good morning, Bill. Good morning. Thank you for joining us today. Um, very interesting book that you've written. Thank you very much. <laughs> very topical, interesting, relevant, all of the above. Uh, in it, you say that the South China Sea is at the fulcrum of world trade, yet it is a crucible of conflict. Can you explain? Well, I think one statistic probably illustrates it best is that uh, my back-of-the-envelope calculation is that one very large oil or gas tanker has to cross the South China Sea every six hours to keep the lights on in Japan. And then you have to add in ships that will supply energy to South Korea and Taiwan and, and, and to Korea itself. So you know, simply just in terms of energy imports, it's absolutely vital for the, for the entire region. And then when you add in um, you know, all the manufacturing goods that are coming out of China and heading to the, um, to the US and, and to Europe, um, it's, it's absolutely fundamental. So, um, very important in the way of energy routes, yet you do suggest also in your book that um, the sea itself is not necessarily oil or energy rich. Well, these are based on estimates that have come out of uh, two American institutions, the, the U.S. Geological Survey and the U.S. Energy Information Administration, and, and they are sceptical. I mean, the Outside China, the conventional uh, wisdom is that the sea contains around 30 billion barrels of, of oil and gas. Um, and... Um, but in China, it's, it's the, the, the estimates are vastly higher, sort of 230 billion barrels of oil. Um, and, the, and the question has always been, why is there this huge discrepancy? Do the Chinese know something that everybody else doesn't, or have they simply got their numbers wrong? And uh, people who are uh, independent analysts just assume that the Chinese have got their numbers wrong. Um, there is definitely uh, some oil and gas in the disputed areas, but not a vast amount. So, okay, so you've got uh, potential exploitation of suspected crude oil and natural gas under the waters. You've got uh, the strategic control of shipping lanes. I mean, is that the reason basically to gain control of the islands, the archipelagos, or, you know, are we missing something? I think, I think there's two disputes going on here. There's a, there's a question of the territory, which is with China and the other states around, around the, 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 the coasts of the sea. And there's also a much bigger question, which is to do with whose rules apply and uh, who's in charge of international law and, and who defines these things, which is a, is a more global struggle between the US and, and China. Um, and for example, uh, the US uh, asserts that international law, the law of the sea, gives it the right to sail a military vessel or fly a military plane up to 12 nautical miles off the, uh, the Chinese coast, whereas the Chinese object to that. Um, and uh, the arguments of that have, uh, you know, go on behind closed doors, but sometimes they become quite dangerous. And we saw in August uh, when a, a Chinese fighter jet um, buzzed an American surveillance jet at very close range. 
And those uh, close encounters do have the risk of, of going wrong and potentially causing a regional crisis. Bill, I think it's quite interesting what you're saying here. I mean, uh, two, two, two issues that I, I sort of pick up here. First of all, you know, when you talk about whether the South China Sea is energy rich, there's a, a tremendous evidence of particularly Western oil companies drilling blanks throughout the China Sea. And yet there's, I think, one or two Chinese companies have actually drilled and found something. So is there that the dichotomy that you're describing earlier? Well, we have to remember that, I mean, the, the sea is, in, in the middle, is incredibly deep, sort of three to 5,000 metres deep, um, and that's the sort of disputed area or, or part of it. And then you have sort of the shallower areas around the edge uh, where oil has been found. So, I mean, you know, off the, mm. you know, not far from Hong Kong, off in the Pearl River Delta, off, off Hainan as well. Um, there, I mean, these are undisputed areas in the same way that off, in parts of the Vietnamese coast, and, of course, off Brunei and Malaysia and, 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 and Yeah, well, there's been a lot of gas around Brunei, of course. Yes, yeah. I mean, and, and, and that's already being extracted. Mm. And, and, and actually, that isn't in the disputed zone. The question mm. is how much is in the disputed zone, and particularly the Paracel Islands and the Spratly mm. Islands. And when you're talking about the disputed zones, um, it seems to me that uh, sometimes the, what is generally accepted as the international maritime rules, as it were, of what, what is the extent of land off your boundaries has been um, exceeded by China's claims uh, because they seem to be sort of claiming for islands that are more or less within the Philippines or more or less within Vietnam or, or other places. Um, are they are they actually going outside international norm, or is it just that this is um, international norm well, anyway? I think that there are two kinds of international law, I think you could say, and, and the law of the sea is quite clear, that it, it's 12 nautical miles of territory if you have a, a genuine island, and if, if your island is capable of supporting human habitation or e economic life, in the words of the treaty, you get 200 nautical mile uh, exclusive economic zone. And a lot of these areas inside the U-shaped line, which is, is some, well, depending on how you read China's claim, its maximum claim would be this sort of this nine-dash line, which emerged uh, throughout the 1930s and eventually became policy in the 1940s. Um, that's way outside this 200 nautical mile limit. And so you see clever Chinese thinkers trying to think of new and innovative legal arguments which would allow them to claim uh, these waters. Uh, and those are being resisted by the other countries. So, Bill, last question before we wrap up. You said in your epilogue that, you know, all along you thought it was important to write this book because you felt that there would be some kind of conflict, some kind of conflict was in, imminent. But then in the last stage of research, you changed your mind in 20 seconds or less. Can you explain? <laughs> Um, I, because I think that uh, everybody involved in this dispute realises how catastrophic a dispute would be. I'm, I'm not saying it's not going to happen. I think there is a risk and, and there are things afoot which could lead the sides into confrontation. However, I don't think China... Uh, is, is, uh, is, is, is the, the Chinese leadership is mad. I don't think they want to engage in a regional confrontation which would undermine their attempts to improve their standard of living for their own people. Okay, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Bill Hayden, the author of The South China Sea, The Struggle for Power in Asia. Stuart, uh, any uh, thoughts, uh, closing points uh, before we sort of wrap up for the day? Well, it's been an exciting week so far. Markets are back up virtually at their peaks again. Um, maybe we've still got some, some way to go on the upside at the moment. So. 
good times for investors. So big thing to look out for is the uh, result of the FOMC meeting later today. Yep. Expect nothing. Expect nothing. And nothing we shall expect. Uh, thank you so much for joining me this morning. You're welcome. That is uh, my co-host, Stuart Altcroft of City Trust. Quick look at the numbers before we depart. The Nikkei is up uh, eight-tenth of a percent to 15,455. Australia's ASX index and Seoul's Kospi both both up three-tenth of a percent each. Uh, ASX is at 5,450 and Seoul's Kospi is at 1,933. And thank you to our producer, Chris Oliver, for all of his hard work. Uh, let's take a quick look at the weather forecast before we close. Uh, today, it'll be cloudy with one or two light rain patches in the morning. Sunny periods through the day with maximum temperatures of around 27 degrees. The temperature right now is 24 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 80%. Now it's time for the half hour news summary. Police have failed an apparent attempt to set off a powerful homemade explosive at Aberdeen Police Station. The 15-year-old boy with a history of mental illness has been arrested after entering the report room at about 7pm last night. Cecil Wong reports. Officers quickly subdued the suspect when he took out a lighter and apparently tried to light several sticks containing a white powdery substance. The area was immediately evacuated and bomb disposal experts were called in. They confirmed that the powder is a primary high